Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, April 4th, 2013. This is going to be a mixed bag episode. We're going to go from the really weird to the really good. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage uh, nowadays of crazy things being said about God in, of all places, Christian circles, Christian churches, Christian Small group studies and Christian, quote, television. Now, I, I, Christian television has such a bad name for itself that it doesn't surprise you that uh, that bad things or really weird things about Christ and God are being said on Christian television. But what may be more disturbing is how many people listen to and watch Christian television as if what they're receiving from these televangelists is the gospel truth. Just send in your $1,000 seed offering and you can buy from God a, a miracle. You know, things like that. Anyway, okay. As I said at the opening of today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, um, well, it's a mixed bag. That's it, we're, It's going to go f- a weird spectrum here. Uh, in fact, let me talk about what we're going to do today. And in this order, we are going to first check in with Cindy and Mike Jacobs and uh, and their television program entitled God Knows. And, well, you know, God knows <laughs> what it is they're talking about. <laughs> I sure have no idea what it is they're talking about or what it has to do with Scripture. Actually, as you're going to see, it uh, it doesn't really deal with Scripture properly. And uh, this kind of will uh, get to one of the points that we're going to be talking about today. And that is, is that you can't, and I think I've said this before recently, you can't, you you can't, can't, can't make a biblical doctrine unless there's a clear teaching from God's word that says that, you know, for instance, think back to the other day that Dr. Miles, whatever, uh, was talking about how God wants you to have four streams of cash flow and income. Uh, and all of that from 
well, Gen- <laughs> Genesis chapter one or two, uh, two, I think, wh- you know, where it talks about the, you know, the four headwaters and uh, coming out of the Garden of Eden. Well, the thing is, is that all that text is doing is describing for you a, a geography. This is what the earth was like when God created it. it. In the Garden of Eden, there was a river that flowed out of it that split into four headwaters. And it ex- described where those rivers went, what their names were, you know, things like that. And uh, if you try to overcook the books here, you end up with absurdity. You know, because if God were wanting you to believe that there's, you need to have miraculously four different streams of, of income uh, in order to have supernatural wealth and abundance and stuff like that, then there would be a clear passage of Scripture that actually said that in unambiguous, clear, didactic language. Didactic basically dealing with teaching, okay? So the idea here is, is you can't create a biblical doctrine unless you have a clear text that says that doctrine. It's... I know this seems kind of basic, but a lot of people who call themselves Christian are not aware of this. And as a result of it, they become bamboozled. They become bamboozled because someone will come along and, and will take a historic, uh, historical narrative and, and do all kinds of transmogrifying to that historical narrative. At the end of it, you know, it comes out as, well, God wants you to have four streams of cash flow, uh, <laughs> <laughs> there isn't a biblical text that says that, and the text that they're pointing you to doesn't say that at all either. Well, that's one of the things we'll be looking at when we look at uh, Cindy and Mike Jacobs as they talk about dealing with strongholds. Dealing with strong. I mean, uh, de- what's a stronghold? I, gee, well, apparently we're going to find out. Then and when we're finished with, um, with um, <clears throat> um, Cindy and Mike Jacobs, and dealing with strongholds, we're going to change gears, and we're going to take a listen to the opening portion of James McDonald's Easter sermon. Now, um, the reason why we're going to be tuning into it is is because I have made the executive decision that it's not going to make the cut for next week's Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. So, that being the case, I thought it would be interesting to at least let you in on... um, what James McDonald did on Sunday. Now, I, I am making the claim that uh, you can tell what kind of a church you're in based upon you know, one of the easiest, uh, if you would, watershed type of things that you could look for is whether or not Christ and him crucified and bodily raised from the grave is front and center on Easter Sunday. Did Jesus die for you? Did he rise for your justification? And what does it mean for you? Not not that God wants to resurrect your dreams or anything like that. Talking about your bodily resurrection, the new life, and you know, that kind of stuff. If that isn't what's being preached on uh, on Easter Sunday and something else is, then you, uh, your pastor's got a priority issue uh, <laughs> of the worst kind. So guess what... <laughs> Guess, guess what James McDonald preached on on Easter? It wasn't Christ and him crucified for our sins. <laughs> yeah, like far, far, far from it. Now, if you're familiar with James McDonald, some of our uh, past critiques of him, we've noted um, uh, that um, James McDonald seems to have a 
um, mm, highly developed um, focus and fascination with money. And so, believe it or not, James McDonald on Easter Sunday decided to (laughs) preach a money sermon. Yeah, you'll get to listen to the first few minutes of it today. And then what we'll do is uh, after that, we're going to uh, check in with Mark Driscoll. And Mark Driscoll uh, recently posted a blog post at his um, resurgence blog entitled How to Interpret Christianese. And not, not only was this one of those ones where he accidentally shot himself in the foot. I mean, seriously, he loaded the gun up, pointed it at his foot, and then pulled the trigger. It was ridiculous. Not only did he do that, but there's a there's a recurring litany in uh, this particular piece that is uh, creepy, weird. Like, yeah, you'll you'll see what I'm talking about when we get to that. And uh, and then to round out uh, the first hour of today, we're going to be um, I'm going to be reading for you uh, a fantastic article written by Albert Muller entitled uh, "Of First Importance: The Cross." And the resurrection at the center, the cross and the resurrection at the center, and uh, and then in hour number two for our good sermon, uh, Easter sermon, we will be actually handing the microphone over to Albert Muller and uh, an Easter message that he delivered, simply entitled First Corinthians 15." That's the name of the message. Yeah, your Easter sir, you don't have to launch into any kind of extravagant sermon series titles or something like that. I mean, I think that's an appropriately named Easter. Uh, message first corinthians 15 <laughs> kind of tells you what's important there you know we're, the, the word of god i mean so no attempt on albert Mueller's part to come up with a s- super clever and whimsical title he just laid it out that hey this sermon's about first corinthians 15 it's preached on delivered on easter and that's how it goes and so uh that's how we're going to do today's program i strongly recommend that you make yourself comfortable and uh, while that, and while I'm reminding you of that, I should, I probably should uh, play our standard warning today because we will be uh, listening to a <clears throat> an update from uh, Cindy and Mike Jacobs, which always has the potential, I mean, the danger, if you would, of um, of harming you as a listener. So I do think it's important that I play our standard warning before we get started. Here we go. Warning, fighting for the faith can be dangerous to your health. Listening with caution is strongly urged while doing any of the following activities. Operating heavy, deadly equipment, playing Farmville, or any time-wasting, brain-numbing activity. For sudden awakening at the sound of a particularly stupid isogetical statement could cause neck strain. Drinking liquids, drinking hot liquids, having liquids too nearby, not having any liquids nearby. The following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Cranial keyboard embedment syndrome, sinu-nasal liquid spewment disorder, steering wheel pounding clenched fist strain, continual gaping dry mouth atosis, and frustrative disbelief brain explosion. Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended. What do you want to do tonight? The same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. The Pinky and the Brain. Yes, Pinky and the Brain. One is a genius, the other's insane. The laboratory mice, the genes have been sliced. The Pinky 
They're thinking in the brain, 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 brain. Before each night is done, their plan will be unfurled by the dawning of the sun. They'll take over the world. They're Pinky and the Brain. Yes, Pinky and the Brain. Their twilight campaign is easy to explain. To prove their mousy worth, they'll overflow the earth. They're Pinky. They're Pinky and the Brain. Brain, 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 brain. See, I missed it there. I, I, I threw in one too many brains. Uh, <laughs> okay, so what we're going to start off with today, we will be um, tuning in to uh, one of the most recent episodes of Cindy and Mike Jacobs' television program entitled God Knows. And, well, I, again, that is the most appropriate Title I've ever heard for a televan, you know, a creepy televangelist type. And well, here's Cindy and Mike Jacobs on dealing with strongholds. Dealing with strongholds. You may have heard this uh, particular teaching before from other folk, and so it, this may not be new uh, ground for any of you. But we'll take a look biblically to see what's going on there. Now, remember, in order for a Christian doctrine to be established, it must be established from a clear passage that says it yeah or more than one actually that's to be preferred but uh, here's cindy and mike jacobs hi welcome to god knows you know why do we call this program god knows good question well you know the history of it tell them the history of it it's quite interesting well we were in spain and i was changing the channel and there were all these people watching you know uh, tarot card readers and there were people broadcasting you know on the occult and god said to me i can do better mm. and so god said to you i can do better <sighs> so he called us to go on television and what do prophets do they tell people what god knows That's right almost everybody every culture has something that says well God knows. What's going to happen? Well, only God knows. We're here today on this show to tell you God does know. He knows everything. Yeah. My question is, is this the best that God can do? Everything. And he is here today to equip us. And Cindy, he knows that there are people who are watching this program that really need to hear what God has to say. Yeah. And so what? Yeah. If you're one of those people and you really need to hear what God has to say, yeah, you don't want to listen to this program. Not at least this. I mean, their program. God knows. <laughs> yeah, if you really need a word from God, that's the last place you want to go. Is the God knows television program? What we want to do for you is we're going to bring you into a teaching that will help you know how to defeat the devil. Mm. That will teach you to know what is coming against you and what to do to do spiritual battle. Yeah. You know, many times, as we talked about uh, on an earlier show, that people think, well, God, why don't you do something? Why don't you do something? But God has given us weapons of warfare. The the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or natural, but mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. Mm -hmm. Well, what is a stronghold? A stronghold is a mindset impregnated with hopelessness that... (laughs) What? (laughs) Oh, man. By now, before we let her wax eloquent regarding her definition of a stronghold, let's take a look at that passage. By the way, which I happen to be familiar of, uh, familiar with that passage, 
for the very reason that uh, I use it as um, you know, kind of my tagline for my letter of Mark blog. So it's in Second Corinthians chapter ten. Second Corinthians chapter ten. In fact, let me pull this up in my computerized Bible. Because, of course, I didn't do it before uh, before I uh, went on the air. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, remember our three rules for sound biblical hermeneutics. They are context, context, and context. Now, you'll notice that she stopped at the word strongholds. She stopped there, and that's in verse 4. Verse 4 has the word strongholds. So if we're going to understand what is being talked about here regarding strongholds, we're going to need to look at the context and see what's going on. So what you do, the idea here is so much of Bible twisting occurs by omitting data, ripping a verse out of context and then telling a story about it out of context, and then you know pulling another verse out of context as if the two hang together when they don't. And a simple example of this is uh, when you know I can prove to you that uh, God wants you to commit suicide. Now it sounds ridiculous, right? Well, it says in the Bible that Judas went and hung himself. You know, and then you can flip over to another passage, rip it out of context. It says, "Go now and do likewise." So you can make the Bible say anything you want it to say when you rip passages out of context. So let's take a look at what's going on here. Second uh, Corinthians chapter ten, uh, verse one. Paul says, "I, Paul, myself, entreat you." Uh, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who, uh, I who am humble uh, when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging warfare or war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. Okay, so there it is, out of context. Strongholds. Okay, the uh, the Greek word there simply means you could say fortresses or something like that. So it's a word picture. Now we continue with the context. We destroy. So what are these strongholds? So well, listen, we destroy arguments. And every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So verse 5 tells you what kind of strongholds we're talking about. We're talking about uh, uh, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Think of it this way. What are the strongholds that are being talked about here? False teaching, false doctrine, attacks from atheists and philosophers and things of that nature. So our weapons that we use in our warfare destroy arguments and lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey God. Christ. Now that's what the passage is saying. Okay. So now that we've established this from the context, let's go back to Cindy Jacobs. And what I want to do is just back it up a little bit so that you can hear what she's going to, she asks the question, what's a stronghold? And then she proceeds to give us a definition of what a stronghold is. But now that we've looked at this passage in context, we can see that the definition that she's slipping in here with her out-of-context passage isn't actually fitting with what this passage is really saying. So let me 
Just back it up just a smidge. Here's Cindy Jacobs again, waxing eloquent about strongholds. And listen carefully to what she does. She'll rip it out of context, stop at verse 4, not read verse 5, and then basically pour into the word stronghold her own definition. This is how Bible twisters classically operate. Spiritual battle. Yeah. You know, many times, as we talked about uh, on an earlier show, that people think, well, God, why don't you do something? Why don't you do something? But God has given us weapons of warfare. The the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or natural, but mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. Mm -hmm. Well, what is a stronghold? A stronghold is a mindset impregnated with hopelessness that accepts as unchangeable something that he or she knows is contrary to the will of God. Yeah. Uh, Where did she get that? A stronghold is a mindset impregnated with hopelessness. Oh, the last thing you need is a pregnant mindset, especially if it's pregnant with hopelessness. Oh, that's just horrible. wonder who the father is. Anyway, (laughs) so (laughs) um, (laughs) a stronghold is a mindset impregnated with, with hopelessness that accepts as unchangeable something that is contrary to the will of God. Well, that doesn't make any sense because I just read it in context. Verse 5 explains what's being discussed here. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. doesn't say anything about pregnant... Um, hang on a second. What is she... Uh, 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 pregnant mindsets there that have been impregnated by hopelessness. <laughs> it doesn't say anything of the sort. So you'll see that's pretty clear what she's doing wrong here. She's not paying attention to what the text says. She's basically spinning out her own theology, but there is nowhere in the Bible that says that a stronghold is a pregnant mindset <laughs> that's been impregnated with hopelessness. You can look far and wide in the Bible. From the book of Genesis all the way to the end of maps. And you will not find any passage that talks about impregnated mindsets you know, with hopelessness. Again, I wonder who the dad is on that. But we continue. It is not the will of God for you to be defeated. It is not the will of God for you to be poor. It is not the will of God for you to be depressed. It is not the will of God for you to be sick. Hmm. So it's not the will of God for you to be poor, to be sick, to be depressed, for any of those things. So, well, what does that mean? Well, if you're poor, you're sinning. If it's not God's will for you to be poor, well, you're in sin. If, uh, you know, you, you're sick, you're in sin. You're outside of the will of God. Don't you want You're doing something wrong. And see, this teaching is so nasty. The reason why it's nasty is this, is because somebody hearing this on a first hear will think, oh, well, God doesn't want me to be poor and God doesn't want me to be sick and things like that. So they're going to try out this theology. They're going to try this out. And you know what's going to happen? They're going to fall flat on their face. Absolutely flat on their face. The reason why they're going to fall flat, flat on their face is because the Bible doesn't teach this. Okay, by the way, you're not sinning if um, you're poor. Not at all. Okay, it, it circumstances may cause you to be poor. And, you know, this, this, in fact, let me give you another passage from the Apostle Paul. In fact, I'm going to give you two passages. Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. I'll start at verse 10 so you can get the context here. Here's what it says. Paul writing to the church at Philippi says, 
I rejoiced in the Lord greatly at uh, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. And in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, I said I would give you two passages. Let me give you the second one. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I'll start at verse 16. This is Paul writing a almost sarcastic rebuke to the so-called super apostles, or regarding the super apostles. Paul writes, he says, I repeat and let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would say, but, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, well, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Well, are they Hebrews? That would be the super apostles. Well, so am I. Are the super apostles Israelites? Well, so am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? Well, I'm a better one. Now, I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the Forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from my uh, from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Now, he- here's the logic behind this. Notice that Paul in Philippians talks about being content in all circumstances, in plenty and in need. Here he talks about the toil and hardship that he suffered as the one who was sent by Christ himself to to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And he suffered tremendously. And it says here that he lacked food, he lacked water, he suffered through cold and exposure, he was beaten and imprisoned. Hmm. If it's not God's will for us to suffer lack, if it's not God's will for us to be sick or anything like that, how how come the Apostle Paul experienced so much of that in spades? Well, the answer is obvious. Uh, Cindy Jacobs here, she's not teaching what the scriptures say. 
There is no biblical text that basically says, oh, you Christians, it is not God's will for you to suffer. You've, you're going to be rich. You're going to be that. You're not going to be the tail. You're going to be the dog that wags the tail. You, you, you things like that. You're the you're the head, not the tail. All this kind of stuff. And you know, notice again, she's basing this on a teaching from a out of context verse where she's poured in her own definition of the word stronghold. We, we back this up a little again, a little bit. Listen again to what she says. As we talked about uh, on an earlier show that people think, well, God, why don't you do something? Why don't you do something? But God has given us weapons of warfare. The, war, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or natural, but mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. Mm-hmm. Well, what is a stronghold? A stronghold is a mindset impregnated with hopelessness that accepts as unchangeable something that he or she knows is contrary to the will of God. Yeah. It is not the will of God for you to be defeated. It is not the will of God for you to be poor. It is not the will of God for you to be depressed. It is not the will of... Now, I could say with absolute certainty, it is not the will of God for her to be teaching this false doctrine. God for you to be sick. But sometimes we don't know what we're battling. Yeah, you know, Cindy, I think it's the, the word is the foundation for that. I want to just share with them a promise of God that, is, that we can use as a launch pad for what we're going to share yeah, with them today. Yeah, I love the Yeah, here, okay, so here's a launch pad text. And I'm going to point out the obvious after he reads it. Pay close attention to what the passage is promising. Is the passage promising that you will never get sick, that you will be wealthy and not poor? Listen carefully to the details of what this passage that Mike is going to share with us says. And this is from 1 Peter, the second chapter, verses 9 and 10. And here's God talking about you. If you're a believer in the body of Christ, this is God speaking to you. This is the word of God. This is what God knows about you. And he says this, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, which in times past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which have not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. There's a foundation for the promises of God that you can fight over. Yeah, and so... Ha- what? Wait a second. What are, what are the foundation of the promises that i'm supposed to fight over that passage didn't say anything about god not wanting me to be poor i definitely that could definitely happen to any of us i mean are you sinning if you're poor are you sinning if you're sick because you're not appropriating the right tools of warfare to tear down strongholds and we've allowed our mindset to become impregnated by hopelessness Again, where does the Bible teach any of this nonsense? It doesn't. Let me read the passage again. First uh, Peter chapter 2, 9 and 10. Now, uh, yeah, in fact, let me back this up just a little bit. Remember our, th- our three rules. Context, context, context. Verse 4. As you come to him, that's Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but, uh, men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious... You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. 
So the honor is for you who believe, but for those uh, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. Uh, who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I continue reading, because context also involves the verses after. Beloved, I urge you then as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor or, or as supreme or to governors as sent by him who punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people." Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now, I've, I've just read it in context here. Um, any there Anything there in that passage that says God doesn't want, it's not his will for you to be sick, to be in, in poverty or anything of the sort. There's no promises along those lines. It's talking about how we've received mercy, how we were once not a people, but now because we've received mercy through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us on the cross and his bodily resurrection from the grave, we've received mercy and forgiveness and God has made us his people. That's what that passage is talking about. And then there's a therefore that follows from that gospel that we just read from Peter. Therefore, live in a certain way, you know, um, among people, not, you know, but live as servants is what it's saying. So here, you know, I have no idea where, uh, what Mike Jacobs is talking about, but he clearly um, didn't pay attention to anything written there in that passage. We continue. And we fight. Well, let's look at the word of God. Ephesians 6 says this. Okay. So she's just changed direction. Now we're in Ephesians 6. Okay. Verse 10. Finally, what does that mean? Why does it say in Ephesians, finally, Mike? Well, because in the first five chapters, something happened before that that you need to understand. Exactly. Yeah, that's a good answer. Finally, because this is Paul's final argument in a very long letter. You know, the book of Ephesians, the book of the church begins, was talking about that we have authority over principalities and powers. Uh, it says that the church is to make known the manifold wisdom of God. To whom? Yeah. To the principalities and powers. In other words, the word of God breaks the power of Satan. Mm -hmm. Okay, what is she reading? Hang on a second. Got to do a quick search. Okay, yep, here it is, but before I read what I've discovered, I want to back up the audio again and uh, take a listen carefully to the details of what she was saying regarding the book of Ephesians, because uh, just a, a good little search using a good Bible tool will help here. Let me back this up. Uh, here's, here she is again. Listen to these details. 
You know, the book of Ephesians, the book of the church begins, was talking about that we have authority over principalities and powers. Begins with that we have authority over principalities and powers. Now, I did a little bit of, uh, of, you know, searching here. And what, what I discovered really quick is that the principalities and powers portion of the book of Ephesians doesn't occur until chapter 6. The book of Ephesians does not begin with a discussion of powers and principalities as she's describing. In fact, um, let me make this a little bit bigger so I can read it. Um, let me read from the, uh, the ESV. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Now, the the word rulers that she, you know that she's tra- yeah, she's reading from the King James, which is translated as uh, principalities. Um, okay, no, notice something here. It says we wrestle against them, but it doesn't say preach to them. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic power over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all of that to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness as shoes and all that kind of stuff. So it doesn't say anything here about preaching to principalities. It doesn't say anything, you know. Uh, at all, and it that when you just do a quick word search of uh, the book of Ephesians uh, for you know the word that's translated as principalities, it doesn't show up until the end of the letter itself. But let's take a look at what how that that book opens. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite things in him, things in heaven and things under the earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him also you have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. We're sealed with the promise of Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Yeah, I, again, let me back this up here. She's saying that the uh, the book of Ephesians starts off with something that it, well, it doesn't start off with. Let's listen again. Principalities and powers. Uh, it says that the church is to make known the manifold ways of God. To whom? Yeah. To the principalities and powers. In other words. Where does it say that? I I don't see any passage that says that we have to make m- these things manifest to the principalities and powers. Where are you getting this from? 
The word of God breaks the power of Satan. Mm -hmm. The word of God is true. The word of God is alive. It's powerful. And so it also talks about relations in the book of, uh, with husband and wife and, and children and so forth in the book of Ephesians. Mm -hmm. So once you've done all these things, Uh realize you have an authority to wrestle against powers of darkness. And then realize that most of the passages, as we study, Mike, concerning spiritual warfare have to do with some kind of relationship. Yeah, absolutely. And you notice it's also this scripture passage I was giving speaks of contrast. That's one of the main things that you see in the Word of God consistently about what you were before and who you are today. And the challenge is if you believe the things of the past... And you'll stay in the things of the past, even though you have this new promise. And God wants to move you from a mindset of the past to the future that he has created for you. Yeah, Yeah, really. So God wants to move me from a mindset. Again, what passage of scripture clearly says that God wants to move me from a mindset? In order for this to be true doctrine, I would need a clear passage that says this. This is, well... Mike and Cindy Jacobs sort of kind of reading between the lines of these biblical passages and finding things that ain't nobody else been able to see before because you can't get this theology from the actual clear didactic portions of Scripture. And that should tell you something. The thing that it should tell you is that what you're dealing with here isn't sound biblical doctrine. What you're dealing with is false doctrine by people who are skilled at twisting God's word. And if you take the time to listen with discernment, with an open Bible, and compare what they're saying to God's word in context, it's extremely easy to see it for what it is. Okay, we are up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. We will be right back. We've got a uh, James McDonald update, Mark Driscoll update, and an Albert Muller update. Lots still to do. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. If your Bible says this, Jesus is alive. They tried to kill him, but they failed. Then pick up the real thing and listen to Pirate Christian Radio. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Done so, please. 
please stow your carry-on luggage underneath the seat in front of you or in an overhead bin. Please take your seat and fasten your seatbelts and make sure your seat back and tray tables are in their full upright and locked positions. Thank you. Thank you, Brittany. In case y'all don't know me, I'm Mark Driscoll and I'm going to be your pilot for today. Oh dear! He looks more like a terrorist, if you ask me. If any of you passengers feel that at any time that you could pilot this plane better than me, then you'll be swiftly thrown under the bus. I mean plane. As you may have noticed, there are also no parachutes on this flight, which means, should you be thrown off the plane, that your landing will be unpleasant. We thank you for flying Mars Hill Air with us today. I guess it's time to take off, then. Well, let's just hope our flight to Boston will be nice and easy. Uh, due to a direct revelation that I just had from God, we are no longer heading to Boston. Rather, we are now heading to New Jersey. <gasps> As I've said before, please trust your pilot or you'll be forcibly removed from the plane. Who on earth would want to go to New Jersey anyway? That's it. God, please escort this man to the back of the plane for violent ejection. Hey, I have my rights. You can't do this to people. Oh, but I can. There's something seriously wrong with all of this. Uh, this is your captain speaking. Do not be alarmed. You are now free to move about the cabin and do as you please. Just whatever you do, don't question my actions or authority. So you're a brick salesperson, huh? Yep. But why on earth would you want to talk about something like that at a time like... Oh. Yeah. I'm thinking it's time that Mr. High and Mighty got relieved of his duties. <laughs> And it is now time for you all to buckle your seatbelts and hold on tight because we are about to start doing barrel rolls. He's going to do what? <laughs> Remember to always trust your pilots. I know what I'm doing. Oh, I do believe the ground is getting awfully close. You can register now for the 10th annual Branson Worldview Weekend in beautiful Branson, Missouri, Friday night, April 26th, Saturday, April 27th, and Sunday morning, April 28th, 2013. Full details are at worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. That's worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. Speakers this year will include Ken Ham of Answers in Genesis. We'll also have speaking with us for the first time his son-in-law, Bodie Hodge, along with Pastor Jesse Johnson, a regular guest here on Worldview Weekend Radio. We'll also be joined by Chris Pinto with a brand new presentation. Mike Gendron will also bring a new presentation, as will Dr. Jimmy DeYoung. We'll also be joined this year for the first time at a Branson Worldview Weekend by Jason Carlson and Jared Carlson. We'll also be joined for the first time in a conference setting by Carl Tykrib. Full details at worldviewweekend.com. We have a family rate and group rate. You can go ahead and purchase your tickets now and receive priority upfront seating when you purchase your tickets now at worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. And join us April 26, 27, and 28 in Branson, Missouri. Missouri.
The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. If you think Cindy Jacobs' stronghold um, doctrine is biblical, that's actually one of the strongholds we're warned about in Scripture. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. Not a lot of money, but it means a lot to us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Time for a James McDonald update. On a warm summer's evening, on a train bound for nowhere, I met up with a gambler. We were both too tired to sleep, so we took turns of staring out the window at the darkness. The boredom overtook us, and he began to speak. He said, son, I've made a life out of reading people's faces, knowing what the cards were by the way they held their eyes. So if you don't mind my saying, I can see you're out of aces for a taste of your whiskey. I'll give you some advice. So I handed him my bottle and he drank down my last swallow. Then he bombed a cigarette and asked me for a light. And the night got deathly quiet. And his face lost all expression. Said, if you're gonna play the game, boy, you gotta learn to play it right. You got to know when to hold them. Know when to fold them. Know when to walk away. Great song. And know when to run. You never count your money. 
You're sitting at the table, there'll be time enough for counting. When the dealing's done. Yeah, Kenny Rogers, the uh, the gambler. That's our uh, update music for James McDonald. And if you're not sure why, go back into the archives of Fighting for the Faith and you can discover that reason. I don't have time to discuss it. Now, now what I've been saying is, is that um, you can tell what kind of church you're in based upon what the pastor preaches about on Easter Sunday. Well, um... Uh, <laughs> How do I put this politely? Um, well, um, there's no way to politely say it, so I'll just say it. Um, James McDonald thought that it was more important to preach about money uh, than it was to preach about Christ and him crucified and raised from the grave for our justification. Now, he starts off his sermon with a with a quick gospel footnote. And so uh, I'll give you uh, the, the context for that. Here's... The first few minutes of James McDonald's Easter sermon. Tell me what you think. Here we go. Open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 26. While you're turning there, uh, let me uh, read a verse of Scripture to you. Acts 13.38 says this. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man... Jesus Christ, through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything. Yeah, actually, the text says um, (laughs) freed from everything from which you could not be freed from by the law of Moses. Yeah, Acts 13, 38, and 39. By the way, the name of the sermon series that he launched on Easter Sunday, God's Money. That's the name of the sermon series. Yeah, let me read this passage again. Uh, Acts 13, 38, and 39. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. By him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from uh, by the law of Moses. He left an important part out there. We continue. I mean, that's the word of God. Just think about that for a minute. Through Jesus Christ, everyone got to believe, got to believe in him. If you do through him, everyone who believes is freed from everything. Everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. See, everything and and everything from which you could not be freed from the law of Moses, those are two different things. Now, that's not some uh, kind of, you know, sort of hippie, ethereal, ecological, free, we're free, it's a concept. Isn't it weird that he used the same Bible twisting technique that Cindy Jacobs used? Strange. No, no, this is not drug-induced, okay? Uh, This is a reality. Uh, He whom uh, the Son sets free is free indeed. And and Christ is in the process of setting his children. Jesus didn't just rise from the dead for your justification. He rose to set us free from specific things that enslave us. Now, scholars and sinners agree that the top three enslavements are uh, money, uh, sex and power. 
If the Lord gives me strength, I'd like to do a series on each of those uh, in the years ahead. Right, just save them up for Easter Sunday. You know, you're doing money this Easter Sunday. Maybe you could do sex next Easter. I mean, that'd be a big crowd pleaser, don't you think? Um, Today we're beginning a a long-anticipated series uh, about money. And and people are like, you can't start preaching on Easter Sunday on money. Watch me. All right. Yeah, we'll watch you, all right? Actually, we're not going to watch the whole thing, but, hmm. You know, I mean, I don't mean to get in the way of, you know, an important sermon, but, um, I mean, if you feel that those are the right priorities, I mean, then for sure, you know, you should be preaching about money on Easter Sunday. I mean, as long as you got your priorities straight, I mean... I always thought that whatever you preach about on Sunday morning will actually tell you what your God is or who your God is. I think this might do that with you. And and if Christ rose to give us freedom, then he rose to give us freedom from specific things. Sad reality is, is that uh, most North Americans and many of the followers of Jesus Christ, though forgiven, are still in financial bondage. They say that uh, the average North American has between seven and eight thousand dollars of consumer debt. That's not like a mortgage or something. That's like um, I thought if I had those pair of shoes, I I, I thought if if we, we 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 got an upgrade on the cruise to the better cabin, I they 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 bought things they couldn't afford to oppress people they don't even care about, and now they're living under the debt. And that's the average North American. If you take out the, we don't have no consumer debt. Yeah, I've heard this sermon a thousand times. This is like the Dave Ramsey opening, you know? I, I hope you cut up your card. If you don't pay your credit bar, card this month in total, throw it in the garbage, never use it again. Yeah, it just makes me wonder if the reason why seeker-driven churches spend so much time trying to help their the people who attend get out of debt is because uh, they've discovered that people who are don't have a lot of consumer debt are able to better support the vision financially, you know, provide the provision for the vision. Just makes me wonder. <clears throat> yeah, so that's what um well James McDonald thought was far more important to uh, <clears throat> preach about on um Easter Sunday. You know, who cares about Jesus and his resurrection and stuff like that? You, you, yeah, it's not like you, you can hear about Jesus any old time, but we're going to talk about the real important thing. Money. Uh-huh. Yeah. I think priorities are just a bit askew there. What do you think? Moving along. Time for a Mark Driscoll update. The cult of personality. I know your anger. I know your dreams. I've been everything you wanna be. Oh, I'm a cult of personality. The cult of personality, the cult of personality, the cult of personality, that's right, living color, cult of personality, that's our <clears throat> update music for 
Mark Driscoll. Well, Mark Driscoll um, has a mm, recent blog post entitled How to Interpret Christianese. How to Interpret Christianese. Now, I agree that there, there are some statements, there's some jargon that evangelicals throw around that uh, you could describe as Christianese, but there was a couple of things in this that I thought were noteworthy. One was that in this blog post, Mark Driscoll inadvertently proves that vision casting is totally bogus. Now, I don't think he set out to, to do that, but it's really easy to do when you got a false doctrine out there. You know, the Bible nowhere teaches pastors to cast vision and for everybody to get behind the vision and stuff like that. Nope. You ain't going to find a single biblical passage that teaches that, but Mark Driscoll, he's one of the guys out there teaching other pastors how to be pastors of vision and to cast vision. And of course, along with that comes the mandatory thing, and that is is you got to throw people under the bus if they're not on board with the vision. This is all documented here at Fighting for the Faith. So, um, but it, it, so in this piece, he inadvertently totally debunks vision casting, but then there's this litany that goes on. Um, y'all familiar with that one psalm that, you know, with it, there's always a refrain, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. You know, it'll say something and then the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Yeah, th- this blog post has a litany kind of similar to that, but it's kind of on the pervy, creepy side. <clears throat> Let me read. Mark Driscoll writes, he says, How to Interpret Christianese. I know many of you who read this blog are new to ministry leadership. I consider it a great honor to make any deposit, so thanks for allowing me that privilege. So who's he writing to? Young, seeker-driven leaders, if you would. When it comes to ministry, some things can only be learned through experience. One example is the ability to translate Christianese into English. So I thought I would provide a handy lexicon of sorts to help accelerate your development. Number one, here's the first phrase. I prayed about it. Okay, Driscoll writes, this is what a Christian means when they're about to throw a fit, but want it to look spiritual instead of childish. He or she is hoping that by saying the word pray, uh, that it'll overwhelm you with awe at their deep spirituality and cause you to fall into a catatonic state where you nod your head and agree to let them say or do whatever they want. And if a single guy says this, it means that he wants to sleep with his girlfriend. Okay. Now, by the way, the litany that you're going to be listening for is that last sentence. If a single guy says this, it means he wants to sleep with his girlfriend. So, um, so the I prayed about it, if a single guy says it, that means he wants to sleep with his girlfriend. Uh, phrase number two, the Lord told me. Now, the phrase number two, the Lord told me, this is where Mark Driscoll, whoops, <laughs> inadvertently debunked whole the whole vision casting thing. I'll explain here in a minute. So when you hear somebody say, the Lord told me, here's Mark, uh, Mark Driscoll translating. He says, what this translated means is, I want to do something that you don't want me to do, so I'm pulling rank on you by saying that Jesus sent me a text message but did not include you on the message, which means if you disagree with me, you disagree with Jesus, so you should be humble and let me do what I want because you don't want to disagree with Jesus, do you? And if a single guy says this, it means he wants to sleep with his girlfriend. Okay, now, 
let me explain how this debunks vision casting. Okay, so Driscoll's saying that whenever somebody pulls the "the Lord told me" card, that's totally a ruse. Okay, to pull rank and basically um, deflect criticism. That's the idea. Well, isn't that what vision casting pastors do? You know, hey, why did you open up your Easter service with ACDC's Highway to Hell? Well, the Lord told me. Jesus told me to do it. Which basically means, translated according to Driscoll, I want to do something that you don't want me to, so I'm pulling rank on you by saying that Jesus sent me a text, but did not include you in on the message, which means if you disagree with me, you disagree with Jesus. So if you disagree with, you know, the the shenanigans and antics of seeker-driven leaders, these vision-casting guys, they always pull the vision card. Well, this is that's not the vision God gave me. Uh, well, here Mark Driscoll in number two of this Christianese lexicon totally debunks the entire premise and methodology of of well vision casting weird huh well again we got that litany at the end there if a single guy says this it means he wants to sleep with his girlfriend okay number three if a christian says to you not to be rude here's the translation i'm about to assault you i would i will likely yell at you make it horrible things about you and then i'm going to ruin your life i've already sent an email to the entire church slash ministry with a uh, with a lot of exclamation points and out of context bible verses connecting judas you and the antichrist as the false trinity sent to deceive the whole world on the last days deception and if you hear these words, uh, buy a helmet and sleep with one eye open. And if a single guy says this, it means he wants to sleep with his girlfriend. Why that litany at the end? Weird. What is his obsession with sex? Uh, number four, uh, with all due respect. So if you hear a Christian say, with all due respect, his translation of this Christianese statement is, I have no respect for you. I despise you. And if it were not a crime, I would do horrible things to you. And I still might anyway, if I can find a way to avoid getting sued or arrested. I have already gossiped behind your back, and I already sent the mob out to look for pitchforks, a rope, and some matches. And if a single guy says this, it means he wants to sleep with his girlfriend. Um, have any of you found that guys, single guys who want to sleep with their girlfriends say the phrase with all due respect? Weird, huh? Okay, number five. <clears throat> phrase number five. I know you are really busy, but... Okay. Now, some Christians are good at making people feel guilty so that they can manipulate them to get what they want. Practically, what they are saying is, I am more important than anyone in this ministry. I am more important than your family. I am more important than your health. Whatever else you have to do, you need to drop it all right now and take care of me. If you don't, it's because you're unloving and not like Jesus who loved people. And if a single guy says this, it means he wants to sleep with his girlfriend. Um, really? Huh. Weird. Um, number six, no offense, but now just as an anvil falls on the head of an unsuspecting victim in a cartoon and someone yells duck just a second too late, no offense, but is what a Christian says right before they drop an anvil. Uh, what this means is that he or she has been planning to offend you and now will be offend, uh, offending you while at the same time trying to get you to sit there and endure the whole offense by confusing you with the words no offense. It's a diversionary tactic, like when a bank robber sets off a smoke canister to distract the guard while emptying out the till. And if a single guy says this, it means he wants to sleep with his girlfriend. 
Why does that keep showing up? Number seven, I don't mean to be divisive, but <laughs> I don't know anybody uses this phrase. I don't want to be divisive, but everybody I know will completely deny being divisive. I, on the other hand, have no problem saying, yep, I'm divisive. I teach doctrine and doctrine divides. Yep, get over it. Okay, so <laughs> uh, number seven, I don't mean to be divisive, but here's the translation. I already recruited a faction to join me. We've taken all of our nice people in the church ministry as hostages underneath our choir robes. We have explosives, duct tape on our chest, and if we do not get what we want in this hostage negotiation, we'll ignite the whole church. And if a single guy says this, it means he wants to sleep with his girlfriend. This is like bad lexicon and like bad advice, and this is written to young church leaders? Scary. Yeah, this is bum advice here. Okay, number eight. At my last church, they. So if you hear somebody say, at my last church, they. Okay, now now what does um, Mark Driscoll do with people who say, at my last church, they? Well, he throws them under the bus. Yeah, in fact, I think it's probably good to remind people of uh, what it is that Driscoll has said regarding this. And uh, here's Mark Driscoll explaining how he handles the people who oppose his vision from God. Remember, that's from number two, though. The Lord told me, but listen. Here's what I've learned. You, you cast vision for your mission, and if people don't sign up, you move on. You move on. There are people that are going to die in the wilderness, and there are people that are going to take the hill. That's just how it is. Um, too many guys waste too much time trying to move stiff-necked, stubborn, obstinate people. Um, I am all about blessed subtraction. There, there is a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. <laughs> and by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. Um, you either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. <laughs> Ah, what a pastor's heart he has. Yeah, get on the bus or get run over by the bus. Okay, so at my last church day, this this is a statement that could get you thrown off the bus at Mars Hill. Uh, so let's his translation. It says, when divorced parents get remarried and the kids really want to work their uh, new dad for something, such, a, such as a new phone, monster energy drinks before 1 a.m. bedtime, agreement to shoot off fireworks and airsoft guns in the house, or a new video game console, they talk about how awesome their first dad was. This puts the new dad in the tough position of caving in or running the risk that the kids will hate him and, and riot because he, he's a bad dad. When a Christian leaves one church family for another, uh, they like to do the same kind of thing. And if a single guy says this, it means he wants to sleep with his girlfriend. Do you know any single guys who've used the at my last church they let single guys sleep with their girlfriends excuse? I I have not met any of those guys. Maybe I don't get out much. Uh and the last one. The last one, uh, number 9. <laughs> number 9. Some people have recently talked to me about quote fill in the blank and the Lord laid it on my heart to bring it to you. Mhm. And here's his translation. What people actually mean is that although they are not officially a leader in the church, they have formed enough of a mob that they are now a de facto leader, kind of like a terrorist, with a cell of sleeper operatives with hidden identities. This cell embeds in your church and remains unknown until the things start to blow up. And if a single guy says this, it means he wants to sleep with his girlfriend. 
again, I, why that constant litany? It's kind of pervy creepy, if you ask me. Uh, finally, I know some of you will struggle with this blog post, but I assure you that I prayed about it and the Lord told me to write it. I did not intend to be rude. I offer these thoughts with all due respect, and I know you are really busy and I want to consider... Yeah. Just strange blog post, absolutely bizarre blog post whereby he, which he has officially creeped me out and, uh, and at the same time inadvertently debunked the entire concept of, well, vision casting. But whatever you do, yeah, isn't it weird though? Kind of the underlying subtext of all of that is, is that if anybody in your church, if you're a seeker driven leader, and any anybody comes to you with any sort of criticism. This blog post teaches these young seeker-driven leaders to just blow you off. Nothing you say is valid. The leader is above reproach. The leader isn't accountable to you. And I don't care how you phrase your criticism, whether you say the Lord laid it on my heart, I've heard these things or whatever. He's basically, there, there, there are no godly critics in the eyes of seeker-driven leaders. If you attend their church, they're the leader, they're above reproach, they're not accountable to you, and don't you dare. Don't you dare. Come to them and expect them to listen to you gripe or complain or moan and carry on about any of the things that you perceive are going wrong at the church. The uh, subtext here is there is no godly criticism and there is nothing that anybody can say to you that is actually valid. Regardless of what their criticism is, pretty much they're going to start with these nine different Christianese statements and because Mark Driscoll has taught all these young leaders out there that you can just blow all this stuff off, and if somebody's coming to you and they're a single guy, that means they want to sleep with their girlfriend, none of the motives are actually pure. None of them are right. None of them have anything to do with God at all. You can just ignore them, blow them off, make fun of them. doesn't matter. Nothing they say, nothing a critic says is actually true. That's the overall subtext, if you would, of that entire blog post. Moving along. From the Albert Muller website, now we're going to turn the corner here and start to do some good stuff. I'm going to read this. Uh, the headline reads, Of first importance, the cross and the resurrection at the center. Yeah, so <laughs> I apologize for the whiplash. I'm really working on my segues, but... <laughs> I obviously need a little bit of help there. Albert Muller writes, he says, The Christian faith is not a mere collection of doctrines, a bag of truths. Uh, Christianity is a comprehensive truth claim that encompasses every aspect of revealed doctrine, but is centered in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as the apostolic preaching makes clear, the gospel is the priority. The Apostle Paul affirms this priority when he writes to the Christians in Corinth. In the opening verses of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul sets out his case. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. 
For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the Twelve, and then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then, he, uh, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me." For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Paul points directly to the events of the cross and the resurrection of Christ. He is not concerned with just any gospel, but with the only gospel that saves. This is the gospel that I preach to you, Paul reminds the Corinthians. The same Paul who so forcefully warned the Galatians against accepting any false gospel reminds the church at Corinth that the very gospel I preach to you is the gospel by which you are being saved. Their stewardship of the gospel is underlined in Paul's words, if you hold fast to the word that I preach to you. Paul's statement of priority is a vital corrective for our confused time. Without hesitation, Paul writes with urgency about the truths that are as of first importance. All revealed truth is vital, invaluable, life-changing truth to which every disciple of Christ is fully accountable. But certain truths are of highest importance, and that is the language Paul uses without qualification. And what is of first importance? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The cross and the empty tomb stand at the center of the Christian faith. Without these, there is no good news, and there is no salvation. Paul gets right to the heart of the matter in setting out that those truths that are of first importance following his example, we can do no less. These twin truths remain as of first importance, and no sermon is complete without the explicit affirmation of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm going to pause there for a second. Albert Muller did not say no Easter sermon is complete without the explicit affirmation of death of Jesus' death and resurrection. He said no sermon, and he's right. Because that's what the Apostle Paul says in the first part of 1 Corinthians. I chose to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified for our sins. Read that again. Following Paul's example, we can do no less. These twin truths remain as of first importance, and no sermon is complete without the explicit affirmation of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it was then, so it is now, and so it ever shall be until Christ claims his church. As Paul reminded the Corinthians and now instructs us, the gospel is at the center of our faith, and the cross and the empty tomb are at the center of the gospel. So we preached, and so you believed, Paul encourages us. May the power of the cross and the victory of the empty tomb fill every pulpit, every pew, and every Christian heart, and may the good news of the gospel be received with joy by sinners in need of a Savior. Amen. And he ends with this passage, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty six through 58 The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that, the, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We are up on our second break. 
fact, what we're going to do when we come back, we're going to listen to an Albert Muller sermon on this very same epistle text, 1 Corinthians 15. Don't want to miss it. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back, a good Easter sermon by Al Muller on 1 Corinthians 15. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. <laughs> the spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. Oh, hey, I didn't hear you come in. What was I just doing, you might ask? Well, I just conquered the outer rim planet of Pico Pond with my trusty double-barreled nuclear plasma cannon. Well, I just did in this video game. But how is it possible for someone like myself to play 13 hours straight and not get a headache? It's quite simple, really. It's because I wear gunners. When I'm rocking these babies, I'm unstoppable. Not limited to just games, mind you. Oh, no! I rock the spreadsheet, the PowerPoint, the word processor, and when that's all done, I hop my T-16 and fry me some toasters. If you want to get in on the action, then head over to piratechristianradio.com forward slash gunners. You gotta see it to believe it. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review Time. And I am in the awkward position of not knowing at which church this sermon was delivered. If you know, will you email me? (laughs) Yeah, it's just awkward. I hunted. Couldn't figure it out. 
The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us from I don't know where. <laughs> but I know who delivered it. <laughs> the, <laughs> the name of the sermon is 1 Corinthians 15. It was delivered by Albert Muller on Easter. It's based on, get this, 1 Corinthians 15, the great passage that talks about our uh, Jesus' death and resurrection and how it ensures ours. And Albert Muller does a brilliant job of digging deep into what this passage means and what it really, really is promising us. It's a fantastic uh, message and, well, think of it this way. Delivered by a high-powered academic, it is very academic in its orientation. I think you will find it very edifying, comforting, and providing you with much hope. Much hope, Christians, in what is coming when Christ is finally revealed from heaven to come and call us from our graves. It's so exciting. Anyway, I'm getting all choked up. Let me go ahead and kill the music without any further ado. Here is Albert Muller in his Easter sermon entitled 1 Corinthians 15. Here we go. When we start looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we realize that Paul's first letter to the Corinthians is here coming to a conclusion. Now, what's really interesting is that we call this 1 Corinthians, but it really is 2 Corinthians. And we call the next letter 2 Corinthians, but it really is 4th Corinthians. Now, why do I say that? It's because in 1 Corinthians, Paul mentions a previous letter. We don't have that letter. And in the, the book we call 2 Corinthians, he mentions a letter between what we call 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And he calls that letter his hard letter. Now, folks, if it's harder than 1 Corinthians, the Holy Spirit knew we didn't need it. <laughs> what we have as First and Second Corinthians are the two of Paul's letters to the church at Corinth. The Holy Spirit wanted the church throughout all the ages to have. This is the inerrant and fallible Word of God. It is important for us to realize Paul said many things, wrote many things, and indeed wrote letters that are not included in the New Testament. But what is included in the New Testament is exactly what we need. We need to read what we read in 1 Corinthians about the spiritual and moral and theological confusion of the Corinthian church. One of the amazing things to us is how a church that is in this embryonic stage of of the earliest church's development could get things so confused so fast. And, And yet, the more we come to understand Corinth, the more we understand why Corinth is very much like postmodern America. And the more we come to understand the Corinthian church, the more we come to understand why the church as, as we know it in this culture faces some very particular trials. One of the first points that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians is that the gospel is always an alien message. It's always an alien message. There's no culture that is predisposed to the gospel because Fallen, sinful, rebellious human creatures are not predisposed to the gospel. The gospel is foolishness to the Greeks. It's a stumbling block to Jews. The gospel is powerful to those who know its saving power. And to them it is the very power of God. Paul then explains to the Corinthians that when he comes to them, he's going to preach the cross. Whenever he communicates with them, the center of his message is always going to be the cross. He preaches Christ 
crucified. Because the cross is that great symbol of the wisdom of God over against the wisdom of humanity. Foolishness of men. Paul says, I'm not going to use lofty words of of rhetoric and eloquence. I'm not going to try to impress you with my words. I want the message of the cross in all of its clarity to be what what possesses you and convinces you and establishes you. Then he goes through a lot of pastoral issues that were obviously of great concern to the Corinthian church. And those pastoral issues are both moral and theological because he has to deal with their confusion over sex, their confusion over marriage, their confusion over sin, their confusion over all kinds of things. Then he has to deal with confusion in the church over matters of worship. What should be unifying the church is instead dividing the Corinthian congregation. And and the one thing missing in the Corinthian congregation that a a crucified living Christ would, would give to his people is love. And he says to the Corinthians, you can have everything else, but if you don't have love, it doesn't matter. We come to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we are nearing the end of the chapter. And after he's dealt with some of the most difficult things having to do with what divided the Corinthians in worship, he then gets to the issue that should frame all of their thinking. And that is the fact that we are a resurrection people. Now, I would remind you, brothers, he writes in chapter 15, verse 1, Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. The first thing he says is, I want to remind you about the gospel. It is the gospel that I preached to you. It's the gospel by which you are saved. It's the gospel in which you stand. The particular kind of expression Paul is using here about stand refers to a status. You stand here or you stand there. You stand in Christ or you stand somewhere else. Standing in the gospel is Paul's concern here. This is the gospel that I preached to you. It is the gospel you heard. It's the gospel you received. It's the gospel you stand in and by which you are being saved. Then notice those last words, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, there's a very clear warning here, and it is hauntingly similar to what we find elsewhere, in particular in Hebrews chapter 5 and 6. It is possible to believe in vain. Now, now, there are people who would hear that and say, are you saying it's possible to believe and to come into a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and then to lose or forfeit that salvation? No, that is certainly not what I'm saying. But it is possible to believe in vain. And what would that look like? It would be believing something that isn't true, misconstruing the gospel, and basing your life on false beliefs missing the point of the gospel entirely. Paul centers their thoughts on the cross. Paul reminds them of the gospel he preached to them. And then he reminds them of priority. And that's what is so clear in verses 3 and following, this issue of priority. I remind you what I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received. So here you have the Apostle Paul saying, I want you to remember that what I delivered to you is what was delivered to me. Paul again and again will speak about the gospel, the gospel I preach, the gospel that you have received, the gospel in which you stand. But he comes back again and again to make very, very, very clear that this is the gospel he received. This is the gospel whereby Paul is saved. And this is the gospel that he now shares with the Corinthian church. 
I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. First, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. You have there two very important issues. They are the two focal points of the gospel, the two great historic events without which there is no good news, there is no gospel, there is no salvation. The first is the historical reality of the crucifixion of Christ, the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross for our sins. And the second is the empty tomb, the reality that in space, time, history, bodily, gloriously, visibly, the Father raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, too many Christians see this as simply stage one, stage two, that leads to our salvation. But it's far more than that. In fact, it's infinitely more than that and infinitely more than we could consider even this morning. But I want you to consider this. The resurrection is not simply the reversal of the death of Jesus. There are far too many people who, when they speak of the resurrection, speak of the resurrection as in God saying, no, you're dead, now you're alive. That's all there is to it. It's simply the reversal of the crucifixion. Now, that is a problem that is reflected in the fact that many people, when they think of eschatology and they think of heaven and the coming kingdom of God and the new heaven and the new earth, see it merely as Genesis 3 reversed. So that, in other words, we had Eden, then came the fall, and now after the accomplished work of God in Christ, we'll be back to Eden again. That is not true. And it is not true that the, that the, the resurrection merely reverses the crucifixion. It creates a something better than had ever existed before. The new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, will not merely be Eden. It will be greater than Eden because the curse will have been reversed, but the reversal of the curse is going to lead to the glory of God in a way that we would never have seen the glory of God before. In a new heaven and a new earth, now you have human beings as vice regents, not merely as sharing dominion, but actually as vice regents with the, with the sun reigning over the cosmos. But you have God known not merely as creator, but also as redeemer. Could not have happened without the cross. Couldn't have happened without the fall. Well, the resurrection is not merely the reversal of crucifixion. It is not merely that we had life, then death, now life again. It is that the resurrection life of Christ is different than the life he had before his, his earthly death. And Paul makes that very clear here in 1 Corinthians 15. And it is simply not even noticed by far too many Christians who do not understand that the power of the resurrection is not merely a reversal. It's pointing to something greater, infinitely greater than can be imagined. The issue of priority here is important too. You have to make decisions about priority and message all the time. If you're a teacher and there's a big exam coming at the end of the week, and you're talking to your students, they're kind of hanging on those words to find out what's of highest priority, what's going to be on the test. If you're in a hospital waiting room waiting for the surgeon to come through those doors to give you a report on the surgery on a loved one, if he comes out and pulls down the mask and says, anyone know a good steak restaurant? Something's wrong. That's not the priority. The priority is to give a report on the surgery. In times of war, 
if, if a junior officer is going to brief the, the senior officer, you're going to have to get things distilled down to the essence. I heard a comedian the other day explain that the South lost the Civil War because it took its scouts too long to give the reconnaissance report. You have to get to the issue of priority. Paul says, here's the priority. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. God raised him from the dead according to the Scriptures. You have to have that to have the gospel. Take any of that away and you do not have the gospel. But Paul is not just about priority here. It's not just what he delivered as a first importance, what he also received. It's Paul wanting to reset our understanding of the Christian life, our understanding of time and eternity, our understanding of all things by the timeline. And so as we, as we move quickly to verse 20, Paul does this by saying, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The word first fruits meaning there will be others that will follow. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. So here you have Paul working out the theme of the first and the second Adam. In the first Adam, fall. In the second Adam, life. In the first Adam, curse. In the second Adam, salvation. For as by a man came death, yes, now by a man comes life. Of course, more than a man, but not less than a man. As in Adam all die, as in Christ all speaking believers here shall be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, and that's a very clear organic metaphor, the fact that Christ resurrected first becomes the model for all of his who shall follow. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And there's so much there. This is the grand scope and scale of history being compressed down into just a few words with the focal point being the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul says to the Corinthians, if you really understand the cross and the resurrection, then you're going to understand the end of history. The end of history is seen in those two events. Paul's history works this way. It goes all the way back to the eternity when God created the cosmos. He makes this very clear in the Corinthian correspondence. And then there was history leading up to the creation of humanity, and then comes the fall. And then after the fall, all of human history is pointing towards cross and resurrection. And after the cross and resurrection, all of human history is pointing backwards now to the cross and resurrection. That's what he received as a first priority. But it is also pointing forward to the accomplished work that Christ will bring into full effect in His coming. Paul says we're living in light of of the past and of the future. Our salvation is grounded in the past and God's determinative act to save, but our life is focused on the future in what our, our salvation now points us to see what indeed the resurrection of Christ points us to know. 
there will be the triumph of Christ over everything. Every power will be put under his feet. Every rule, every authority, every power. He must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. What is declared in the empty tomb is the end of every earthly rule, the end of every earthly conspiracy, the end of evil, the end of of every human ambition to defy God. It will all be put under Christ's feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. It's very clear. Again, in the Colossian letter, Paul makes emphatically clear what it means for Christ to be Lord over all things. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Very clear picture. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. Now, commentators who look closely at the Corinthian correspondence will notice something here. Paul in in chapter 2 says, I'm not going to use eloquence, rhetoric, logic, lofty phrases, convoluted arguments to make my case. I'm going to set before you the simplicity of the gospel. And he does. But Paul is a classically trained mind. In, in all that the Lord knew of Saul and prepared him to be as both Saul and then redeemed as Paul, the Lord's making use of everything Paul has in his background. One of the things Paul has in his background is an understanding of the power of language and an understanding of Jewish theology. He was a Pharisee, trained by the very best. He understands the logic of the Old Testament. He understands the logic of Greek and Greco-Roman philosophy. And he understands that there's something to unpack here. And he does it in, in what is an extremely complex set of words here, in verse 27, when he says, For God has put all things in subjection under his feet, but when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. In other words, the first thing Christ is going to do is bring everything under subjection to himself. It is, it is focused on Christ himself. This is the second person of the Trinity. This is the risen Christ who is bringing all things into subjection to himself. This is not, at this point, subjection to the Father. This is subjection to himself. This is Christ, the one who is despised of men, the one who is despicably treated, the one who is nailed to a cruel cross. This is the risen Christ who will rule until every single human rule is put under him. Every ruler, every principality, every power, things seen, things unseen, until all things are in absolute subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, this is verse 28, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. Now, this is a reminder to us that 
we are given glimpses of the life inside the Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And here we have the reality that in an act of divine love, the Son, having subjected all things to Himself, will then demonstrate the right order of all things in the glory of God by subjecting Himself and thus all things under His feet to the Father. Now that, in just a few words, that in the English translation may seem very complex, there in verses 27 and 28 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul takes the world in all of its fallenness and all of its ugliness and all of its conspiracies and all of its brokenness and all of its sinfulness and all of its its wars and rumors of wars and all of its earthquakes and all of its termites and all of its poisonous vipers. And he takes that world and he turns it upside down into a new heaven and a new earth and puts it under the feet of the Son who then places it all under subjection to the Father. In two verses, Paul takes all of human history and distills it down to the victory of God in Christ and the gift of all things by the love of the Son back to the Father. It's amazing that we can read through 1 Corinthians 15. We can know it's talking about the resurrection and we can see Paul's logic that if the resurrection is not true, then we are still dead in our trespasses and sins. But we often do not go far enough into the text where we understand that now Paul says in light of the resurrection and in light of what the resurrection promises, everything's going to be well. History is now determinatively going to conclude in a way that the resurrection reveals to us. In the resurrection, we see the complete reversal of the curse and so much more. We even now come to understand what it means for the resurrection to point to the Son bringing all things into subjection to Himself in order that He may then subject Himself to the Father. In the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to the church at Philippi in chapter 2, there's that passage which is often referred to as the passage of kenosis where we are told that Jesus emptied himself and humbled himself, taking on the, taking on the form of sinful humanity, yet without sin. He took on full humanity, but not sinful humanity. He emptied himself. And now Paul helps us to see on the other side what it means for all things to be brought into subjection to him. In First Corinthians, in, in Philippians chapter 2, at the end of that passage, we hear that it's on the basis of his obedience and being subjected to the Father's will that led him to the cross that he's given that name that is above every name. That in the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So now we come to understand that not only was Jesus subjected to the Father, as Paul writes in Philippians, and faithfully so, he will subject himself once again on the other side of the resurrection, on the other side of history, and all will be well. But at the end of this chapter, there's something else we really need to see. Just in order to make sure that we understand why the resurrection is the ground of our hope. And so we turn to verse 42 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And Paul concludes his argument 
with words that in the Greco-Roman culture would clearly be words of conclusion, so is it. Like, therefore. It's coming to the conclusion of the argument. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. So it is. Paul's given us an explanation here that goes well beyond what many of us imagine is the meaning of the resurrection. But he relates it to our current state, and that's what's so very important. Why, what does it mean now to live in, in light of the resurrection? What does it mean for Paul to, to write to the Philippians about wanting to know Christ and the power of his resurrection? Well, this is Paul saying, look, in light of the resurrection, we know certain things and can live in a certain way. There is an order in the resurrection, and had we time, we could look at all of those verses intervening. But in verses 42 and following, he says, this is the way it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. That's our earthly body. This is a perishable body. And boy, do we know it's perishable. We are reminded time and time again how perishable our body is. We, we see the evidence of it. We feel the evidence of it. We, we stand at the, at the hole in the ground while a body is being put into the grave and we see the perishableness of it. But what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. So in the resurrection, again, it's not just a reversal of the curse. It, it is not merely reversing death so that there is life once again. This is life that is a different life because the life we know now is life in a perishable body. But the life we shall one day know is the life in a resurrection body. There's more to this in verse 43. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. The body we know now is honorable in many ways we can imagine, but it is dishonorable in others. My body dishonors me all the time. My body dishonored me by not making of me a great athlete. My body dishonors me by showing evidence of decay. My body dishonors me by failing to be totally operational in every way that I wish it were operational all the time. My eyes have failed me. My intestines have failed me. My limbs have failed me. My skin now fails me. And the reality is that's humanity. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. Everything about our resurrection body will declare the glory of God. And nothing that decays can adequately declare that glory because God's glory doesn't decay. Nothing that fails can declare that glory because God's glory never fails. Nothing that is passing can fully reflect the glory of God because God's glory is not passing. It's not a passing thing. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. We know that weakness. I was watching a kid the other day who was trying to stay awake. And it is a failing, failing attempt. 
you can keep yourself awake for only so long. And somehow, it seems to me, the younger and the older demonstrate this a little more clearly than others. You just discover that intentionally or not, you're asleep. At some point in my life, I passed a point, which must mean I'm on the old side, where I can all of a sudden realize that I was sitting in a chair for a length of time, unconscious. There's a certain weakness that comes over us. You can deny hunger for, for so long. You can deny thirst for so long. We know a body now that is characterized by weakness. It will one day be raised in power. It is sown, in verse 44, a natural body. It will be raised a spiritual body. It's still a body. Far too many Christians have this, this understanding of heaven in a disembodied state. We, we're going to have a body. But it's going to be a resurrection body. It'll be a body that is powerful, that is glorious, and that is strong. It is sown a natural body, is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Here again, Paul, the rhetorician, is making very clear, if we're making a distinction between a natural body and a spiritual body, it's because both are significant to the argument. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So there's a difference. Adam is in one sense our father, the father of all humanity, because it is through Adam and Adam's seed that we have life. But Adam cannot save us. Adam, in some ways, is, humanly speaking, the father of our natural body. Gives us a lot to blame Adam for. But... Christ is the author of our resurrection body. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. So that's the order of things. It is necessary that we live and know this natural body, even as believers, and in order that we will one day know this supernatural resurrection body. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Adam was made from the dust. And to the dust, that body will return. But that which is a spiritual body will never die. The second man came from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. There's the great divide in humanity. There's no great divide in humanity between those who are in Adam and those who are not. We're all in Adam. There's no distinction in humanity between those who have a natural body and those who do not. We all have a natural body. There's no division in humanity between those whose body is inclined towards death and others whose bodies are not. No, the divide in humanity is between those who are merely born of Adam and those who are born both of Adam and of Christ. Just as we have born the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. The principle comes down to verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood shall not inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. 
In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Flesh and blood here symbolizing not just what it means to be embodied, but the body we got from Adam. A body of flesh and blood that will perish and will decay and will be destroyed. But for those who are in Christ, there is this mystery We have not only the perishable, but the sure and certain hope of the imperishable. We shall not all sleep, which is to say, not all will die. Christ will come when some believers are still alive. But we shall all be changed, even those who are alive. That's why it talks about the quick and the dead in that language you may remember from childhood. You wonder what in the world that referred to. The living and the dead, all raised and all transformed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, this is eschatology. This is the very end. This is what happens in the conclusion of history. This is what the resurrection is pointing to. There's going to be a twinkling of an eye, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. It's the only way we will inherit the kingdom of God. And then shall come to pass that which is saying, as here there is this beautiful reference, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Isaiah chapter 25. The prophet foresaw a time when death would have no sting, when death would be swallowed up in victory. Paul says to the Christians at Corinth, you've seen it. You know it. I delivered it to you as of first importance as it was delivered as of first importance to me. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And that God raised Him from the dead according to the Scriptures. Thing of death, sin. Power of sin, law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Then He can end as He does in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So Paul says, it's in light of the resurrection that we can keep on doing what we're called to do. It's in light of the resurrection we can raise our children. It's in light of the resurrection we can share the gospel. It's in light of the resurrection that we can come to church and sing these hymns and declare these truths because we know them to be true. It's in light of the resurrection that we can be born. It's in light of the resurrection that we can take the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's in light of the resurrection that we can die. And it's only in light of the resurrection that we can look death in the face and say, that is not the end. And what comes after death is not merely life as it was before restored. But the kingdom of God dawning with all things under subjection to Christ who brings all things under subjection to the Father. And that which is sown in dishonor is raised in honor. That which is sown in Weakness is raised in power. That which was mortal 
shall be clothed with immortality. And thus we celebrate the resurrection, not just on the Sunday that so many call Easter, but that's why we gather together on the first day of the week in light, we are told in the book of Acts, of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ on the first day. We're the people for whom resurrection is not one truth among others, but the great truth that establishes why we have hope, why there is victory, and why we go on. The resurrection is that great event to which we look backwards in order that we can look forwards until we meet again. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for this word you have given us. May this word penetrate our hearts and may the joy of the resurrection fill every heart and every home that is reflected here today. And may we be filled with a passion to see others come to know this truth, this gospel, this Lord. For it's in the name of the crucified and resurrected Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.